welcome to 1001 Books, the podcast where we read the 1001 books the experts say you're supposed to read before you die and decide if they're really worth your time. I'm Nicole, a lover of Harry Potter and historical fiction. And I'm Chelsea, also a lover of Harry Potter and any good book that's going to make me cry. So astute readers or listeners will have noticed that book 16 has been missing we've been releasing and that's because we sadly lost that episode to a tragic computer virus technology and i don't get along yes so the other episodes that were lost we were able to reconstruct but this one was broken down into six second fragments that we would have to put back together and life is too short to do that and i love you all but that seems like too much so even though it's been a few weeks we're gonna recreate this episode for you in all its glory um though we have a little bit more distance on this book which might actually make our analysis more astute and um looking back at our notes from when we first recorded there's some things connections i can make to books we read after Mm -hmm. that now come with this book so that'll be kind of interesting as well so we will be releasing this book in the place of where book night after book 19 but this was actually book 16. 16. But before we get into it, let's talk about what we were reading now slash then when we recorded. Yeah. Um, So the last book I read when we recorded this episode was called Artemis by Andy Weir. And he's the guy who wrote The Martian, which I read The Martian and I really liked it, even though it's like those his books are very technical and sciencey, but they're but I'm surprised by how much I still find them interesting. Mm -hmm. And this was like similarly technical, but it was about a colony on the moon called Artemis and it was basically a heist on the moon which is so which cool. is a really great idea and the writing is not like ex- excellent it's it's okay but the premise is so unique that I think his books are still good you know um and and I this I think would actually probably make a better movie than The Martian because there's more action you know yeah yeah what were you reading when we met last I was reading I've got this round by Mamrie Hart Mamie Hart is a YouTube star that I have been following for a very long time. She does the YouTube channel, You Deserve a Drink. And I just think she's really hilarious. And this is her second book. And it was all short stories of like little vignettes of things that happened in her life. And I just thought it's just such a funny, like good, easy read. She's really funny to read. She's relatable because she's about our age. It's just a nice. Yeah. And it fits into like in another episode, you said you've been reading a lot of like actress autobiography, yeah. like funny books. And, that was and, those one are, of and them. this is one of them. Like yeah. they're so light. And I really like listening to those kind of books on audio mm-hmm. when they're like read by the actress. Like I read Anna Kendrick's book. Like yeah. That. I read and and uh, Lauren Graham's book like recently. And they're, yeah, they're just light and silly though I still think the best one in that genre I've ever read is Bossy Pants oh I by love Amy Bossy that one's Pants. the f- more yeah. funny than any of the other ones yeah just, I love Amy or not Amy Poehler um Tina Tina Fey did Tina I say Faye. Amy Poehler Amy you Poehler said Amy Poehler is yes called yes please which I've also read and it's good but Tina Fey is Tina Fey is the best one yeah <laughs> um but what we read for this episode was If This Is a Man by Primo Levi And it was published in 1958 in Italian and then translated in 1969. It is also part of a trilogy of books about this author's duology of books about this author's (laughs) experience during the Holocaust. If This is a Man directly follows what happened to him in the concentration camps. And The Truce, which is the follow-up, follows the next, his journey kind of back to where he ends up after the concentration camps. We did not read that. I do plan on reading it. Yeah, both of our copies have both books in one binding. And 
Um, and I think it would be worth a read, but we neither of us have picked it up. Yeah, even I now it's been it several yet. weeks since we first read this. I still, though, like, I intend to. I yeah. just haven't. Yeah. And this book, actually, notably, since we're talking about it um, after we've read it a while ago, I've read multiple Holocaust books or picked up multiple Holocaust books since just because it, like, it made got me the, back the, into yeah. it. Um, which, those are usually good crying books. So, you <laughs> so know. So, right, it's right in your right yeah, wheelhouse. Alley. Yeah. <laughs> but when you were reading this book, after you finished it, what was the one word that you thought you would describe this book? Um, so, I went with a phrase, which is... Um, I went with a phrase, which um, was a direct quote from the book, which I'll share later, which is, strangers are enemies. What was your one word? My one word was hopeful despair. And so this book, uh, just for our quick plot, just a heads up, we kind of already talked about it. There's not really any, there's not really any spoilers in this book. So if you listen in, you're not really going to have it spoiled for you because clearly because it's an autobiography, the author survived the Holocaust. And yeah, and it's, so it's about concentration camps. I think you kind of get the gist. But the quick plot (laughs) is just that it's one man's memoir about his life in the concentration camps and how he survived during World War II. Right. So, yeah. So Primo was an Italian Jew. He went, he went into the, into uh, Auschwitz? I, yes. Yeah, I'm into Auschwitz sure. for a while. He survived for like two years or so mm-hmm. before being liberated. And so this book covers that whole And period. he survived because he happened to be in the hospital wing when they led people off on death marches. Right. So, yeah. So when the Germans got afraid that people were coming, you know, the allies were coming, most a lot of the camps they like took everyone who could walk and made them walk you know until basically until they dropped dead trying to get them closer to the center of germany mm-hmm. where the front was like keep them behind the front but then he was in the hospital so they just everyone who was sick they just left behind so he had like typhus or something yeah and so he stayed and then that actually saved his life because who knows what would have happened if he'd been yeah, on and that march. was yeah that was actually the thing that saved him which is just so yeah. interesting to me so some of the, one thing i think is really profound about this book is that he wrote this so soon after the war a lot of other memoir like nonfiction books about the holocaust i feel mm-hmm. like were written much later or like when i went to the holocaust museum in washington dc we got to hear from a survivor um and so you're just hearing them reflecting on it you know 50 60 years later as a as an older person and this is like still very fresh and so it really feels like he wrote this book for himself too to process to his process own, it, own yeah. emotions as well as wanting to have the story told and remembered which is makes it really powerful and we've said on the podcast before that we both are like huge fans of world war ii fiction and so uh-huh. when we drew this book and once we realized what it was we were really excited about it because like oh like this is like right there for us it's what we the kind of books we love to read and i never heard of this one before yeah yeah i know i really i um enjoyed this book a lot I thought it was hard to read because of the material and I really one thing that stuck with me throughout this book is that in the introduction um the part that's written by himself so there's two introductions to this book again reading those introductions I know I and even books I read now not for the podcast I read the introductions I do it's too. just it's changed me now I read um, them <laughs> but in the part the introduction that he himself wrote um he ends it with the sentence it seems to me unnecessary to add that none of the facts are invented and I just think that's that stuck with me for this whole book because what I remember even weeks later and um is that it was just laid out so like this happened 
Yeah, and it was very blunt. It was very blunt. And then this happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it wasn't. It wasn't dwelling on it. It wasn't trying to sensationalize it. It was like, no, this straight up just happened. Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was no like, and it wasn't so long that there could be any romanticizing of it. Uh It was just like brutal, straightforward facts. And I think this is the second book that we've read that's been translated from the Italian. The other was Mm -hmm. um, to each his own. And it seems like when from from those two books, when Italian is translated to English, it's very like it's very sparse. Or maybe the the common writing style for Italian literature is pretty sparse. sparse. And so, but that really fits the theme of the book also in this case. Um, Let me share with you guys the quote that I, so I got the enemy, strangers are enemies. So in the author's preface, in the the very first page of this book when I was like, and I was immediately like, this book's going to be great. Um, He writes that um, many people, many nations can find themselves holding more or less wittingly that every stranger is an enemy. For the most part, this conviction lies deep down like some latent infection, and it portrays itself only in random, disconnected acts and does not lie at the base of a system of reason. But when this does come about, when the unspoken dogma becomes the major premise, then at the end of the chain, there is the lager or the concentration camp. Here is the product of a conception of the world carried rigorously to its logical conclusion. So as long as the conception subsists, the conclusion remains to threaten us. The story of the death camp should be understood by everyone as a sinister alarm signal. So I love the, I think it's really true, the idea that I think now World War II, like the, the World War II generation is like in our lifetime, every, everyone who is involved in it will die like mm-hmm. soon, you know, in the next 10, 15 years. Yeah. We'll see that happen. And so it feels far away. Those camps feel distant, you know, but I think the idea that the underlying, underlying like ideology that caused those camps is still very much present in our world. And so we'd be kidding ourselves to say it's not a possibility that it could happen again. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, of course, it's important to remember remember the camps, remember the suffering, but then someone who cares about that should equally be dedicating themselves to eradicating the philosophy that leads to a situation like the camps. Well, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of links to, um, we're a little quote heavy here in the beginning, but it kind of links to my favorite quote in this book, and I think we maybe touched on this in our Witness episode, but I'm not quite positive because it actually kind of ties back into our book, The Witness um that you're now hearing after we record this but we hadn't yet read when we first recorded this um is a quote that even in this place one can survive and therefore one must want to survive to tell the story to bear witness and the and and that to survive we must force ourselves to save at least the skeleton the scaffolding the form of civilization and i just like that idea like you, those people who survived the Holocaust, he, he really felt, it seemed like in his writing, it comes across that their job by surviving, they, their job was to bear witness to what happened and to speak to it. And that, um, because in this, throughout the story, he talks basically about how, um, in the camps, the people basically, they were each other's enemies. They couldn't, you could only really save yourselves, but that didn't, that right. didn't make you not human anymore because it was it was a survival mechanism. Right. So and he talks yeah, he talks about how like every like if someone left their bowl, you would take it. Like you had to hold on to your possessions. Mm-hmm. If someone you wouldn't share the little bit of extra food that you found, right? It was it was cutthroat. But that this 
and that but that was like there was nothing wrong with that anyone would do that in that situation but it didn't dehumanize them it didn't mean that they were animals and like that I think that when he's saying that you have to save at least the skeleton the scaffolding that idea that once you are saved you're not going to continue that behavior is like that scaffolding that you save that ability to drag yourself back out of it yeah and really be a witness for what happened without um being mired in guilt or losing your humanity forever kind of thing. Right. Um, And so I really, I enjoy the idea of how when people go through trauma, a way to find, not enjoy the idea because it's trauma, but like I find some sort of peace in the idea that when you go through trauma, that gives you the ability to be a witness for making sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah. And I think that's, it's apparent that this the author that's what he's how he's trying to process his Mm -hmm. pain which is really powerful um and and it kind of seems like at the beginning you know he arrives at the camp with a group of italian jews all from his region he like gets he was like fighting the resistance and he gets captured and when they find out he's a jew rather than you know some sort of political prisoner or he goes to the concentration camp but there's all these people from his region and they kind of stick together as a group Mm -hmm. because they share a language and and um, some people die right away, you know? Yeah. And, and I feel like he kind of implies that um, a lot of that is also, like, from despair, you know? That, like, the, the you know, the disease and the lack of food and the hard labor, like, what mm-hmm. if you have lost your sense of hope, it's going to get you faster. It doesn't yeah. mean that if you have that hope that you'll survive. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that everyone who died didn't have it, but that in, a like, a small way that – um, the people who were just like, who immediately thought there's no way I'm going to survive this didn't survive. Yeah. You know? It was a, a mindset thing because there wasn't much to keep you alive except for the idea that there was something to keep you that, alive. Yeah, that this wasn't the whole world. The whole mm-hmm. world wasn't this evil. It kind of reminds me of like when, when I very first found out that my grandpa had cancer, I like, like the next day I got the flu, just like immediately. Your body just And it was like, I must have been exposed to the flu before that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but it's just like, you're, you, we process, like there's some emotions that we process so physically. And like recently another friend, someone she knew committed suicide and then she got pneumonia like two days later. It's, um, yeah. Teachers always joke that you get to summer break and you get like deathly ill for like a week. Yeah, because like your body's just like, okay, it. we're good. Yeah, now um, I have time for this now. I can be sick. Yeah, or sometimes it doesn't when you don't have time for it. As a reaction, <laughs> like Kenny, what you were saying. Yeah, um, and uh, the, he does say we were ninety six when we arrived. We the Italians of the convoy, um, one thousand seven hundred, one hundred thousand blah blah, some number. Only 29 of us survived until October. Of these eight went in the selection. We are now 21 and winter has hardly begun. Yeah. And so that is also something I appreciated was in this novel, because he's so direct, it's like, it makes it so much more stark that all these people did really perish and that those were people who had lives and families and loves and cares and that they're just gone. Yeah, and so. I think that the, like, the circumstances that lead to the camps, like, it's easy to believe that they're far from our time, but mm-hmm. I've noticed a lot 
um, since our current president has been president, that there's been lots of, you know, memes and stuff about like, oh, this thing that Hitler said and this thing that Trump has said. Yeah. And most recently about, uh, he said something about immigrants being animals and that Hitler said Jews are animals. And like, you know, people are like, yeah. this is fascism. And, uh, and it's, and I think that stuff is really important because, uh, it's easy to be like, those are other people's prejudices, not mine. Yes. But you might be, anyone could be guilty of having some prejudice. Like, everyone has some prejudice. But of just being like, oh, like, that comment was made and I didn't really think about it till afterwards that it bothered me. Mm-hmm. You know, or my friend said this and I didn't think about it until a little bit later that that was kind of a weird thing to say. Or, like, yeah. that they were implying this bad thing. Um, and it's just like, that's the stuff that as an individual it's we have responsibility to be vigilant for if we want like a world that the camps don't happen in um but it's but and it's like this book is like a very stark reminder to like hold it close to yourself you know one thing too that I um think thought a lot about in this book is or after reading it and kind of with where we've been reading since is how interesting it is that um this is the genocide or not like the the mass murdering. I don't know if you call the Holocaust a genocide. Is oh yeah, it a genocide? it's a genocide. Yeah, it's a genocide. I, I feel like know it's the most genocide. The genocide know about. that we think about. Yeah, this is the one we know about. But genocides have happened multiple times. Yeah. since, um, like in Cambodia, in Cambodia there's been yeah. a genocide in, in Armenia. Before this, there was a genocide in yeah. the Congo. There was a genocide. Yeah. Um, in, in Rwanda. Rwanda. That's yeah. the one I was trying to think of. Rwanda, there's a genocide. So there's lots of genocides since this then. Um, and how, why is it that this is one is the one we care about um, has kind of been sitting with, someone said something recently about this to me. I can't remember who. Um, or I heard an article about, like, why... Was it me? Because I think it was on a podcast episode. Oh, maybe it was. When I talked about how in Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, he talks yes, about... Yes, 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 that was, yes. This was in the episode we most recently released yeah, as a recording okay, about the River Between, about mm-hmm. how, like, Hitler counted the people that were killed. Yes, and so, okay. so we have a better sense of it. But maybe even more people died, like, in the Congo when the Belgians were killing mm-hmm. people to, to harvest rubber. But we don't have the numbers and so I think that's part of it, and I think some of it is, like, racism, that mm-hmm. we identify with it more, and that um, culturally, so when I, so I lived in Cambodia for a year, and so we, I learned a lot about the killing fields and the Civil War there, a lot. I read a lot of books about it that year, and I went to museums, and I talked to people, and I got to talk to my host family, like, my host parents were alive then, right? Mm-hmm. And they were forced to get married by the Khmer Rouge because they did that. They just, like, lined people up to, like, and you have to get married, you know, um, to increase their, their numbers. Uh-huh. And um, they're currently separated at that time. <laughs> um, but they had nine children together. So, <laughs> but the, uh, but it was, so I read, learned a lot about it. And that's, like, the only genocide that's ever happened between within an ethnic group where, like, everyone has the same ethnicity and the same religion. Uh-huh. So it's, like, hard to know, like, how did this, like, it feels yeah. weird, I think, to people who study that. And I even got to go the, at that time in 2010-11, they, I don't know if it's still going on, but the there was an international court convening to try to convict people who are responsible for genocide, even though they were all, like, 80 years old because mm-hmm. this happened in the 70s. Um, but, but I got to go to one of the sessions where they were hearing testimonies and there was all like hundreds of 
like lawyers and judges and all this like translation happening it was it was really crazy and all the lawyers had like done this in Rwanda and now they're doing it here this was like their career they went mm-hmm. around to like judge about genocide it was crazy like which how what do you a, get how do you get into that <laughs> what a depressing career I know too. but you can see the sense of justice in it yeah you know but so when I was in Cambodia, like my host sister was telling me about how they learn about it in school, but when, and her parents would t- tell her about it, but she didn't believe them because how could something so terrible and crazy happen? Mm-hmm. And so she didn't really believe about it until she got, got it in school later, you know, because it seems, even though it happened to her own parents, parents like a yeah. very short time difference. Um, and then like in the time when this is happening, my mom was in college. And so you would think, Oh, on college campuses, you're paying attention to the world. And she said that there was no news at that time about what was happening, mm-hmm. you know? And so it is interesting how we, like, how the, we cover it. But, oh, the point I was trying to make was that in Cambodia, in gen- vaguely in general, culturally, when something bad happens, the response would be to just not talk about it. Because by, by talking about it, you're inviting, like, it to happen again. You're inviting bad spirits mm-hmm. for it to happen again. But I think in Western and American culture, for sure, we want to talk about it. Let's memorialize it so it never happens again. And I think in the Holocaust, that comes from more of a European tradition, that let's memorialize it. So yeah. we've memorialized it. And we talk about it in, the in like, the West in, and – um. And so I think that's part of it. But if, if it happened in another culture, their cultural response about how they would deal with that pain might be different. Not, bad, not worse or better or worse, but just yeah. different how they respond. But I think that affects how we learn about it at someone not from that True. country. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it is it's so interesting. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, really, I really did enjoy this book. I think that this is going to sound weird because I don't mean it as like a, I sometimes find comfort in reading books about really horrific things that happened because it reminds me that, like, we're able to pull ourselves out of so much worse. Right. Because that makes sense. They highlight the, like, best and worst of humanity, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's and that's why they're compelling. Yeah. You know, tragedy brings out the best and the worst in people. And, and it's it feels important to stay in touch with both of those things. Yeah. And I yeah. think that sometimes it's really easy to get mired down in, like, little things that are happening or little things that are making you upset about our country or even your town or your state or your city. or And you, like, build them into these big deals. But I think sometimes when you read something so bluntly put like this, it reminds you, like, Whoa, take a step back. Yeah, so in another book that I've been reading for an upcoming mini-sode, they touch on that, they give like a sociological name for it, but it's the idea that humans have always thought that the era that they personally are are alive is the most important time in history. Mm -hmm. That's our nature, which is so true, right? Yeah. And you see it happening um, in our lifetime, you know, that like people, you know, oh, like right now, like, what's going on politically, climate change, like these things, are the, and they are important and they yeah. are big, but you can't really know that they're the most important things in history until it's been way longer. So people in the dark ages in Europe, when we would consider that they didn't contribute very much to the thought human story, the they still thought it time. was the most important time. Yeah. Uh, that's just how we are. And so uh, I think that's why we like to read books about times that we now know really were an important time mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it, it validates that feeling that what we're doing is important. Yes. I also, I think it's interesting too, um, 
when reading this book, I thought a lot about like how every time we re- I read a Holocaust book, I always think about the other people, like the Germans who are involved in this mass murder mm-hmm. um, and the genocide and how they really, how they became complicit in it. Um, and yeah. something I, I thought was interesting about this book and I think is um, interesting because it's his like direct res- perspective. So years out, so many, like only a few years yeah. after was how he was like, all the bad things, which I think this is true. I just think it's interesting. Mm. All the bad things I did can be forgiven. I didn't lose my humanity. But every single person who worked at those concentration mm. camps la- lost theirs. And yeah. I think forever. That, like, forever. They lost it forever. And yeah. I think that that's mm. interesting because I think that um, – did they? Did the person yeah. who was forced into service um, – because it's not like you have much of a choice in Germany at the time. Um, yeah. And then ended up getting assigned to taking people's clothing. Is he? Did he lose his humanity forever? Yeah. And so yeah. I just, I thought that that was interesting. And I said earlier, I said, I think it's true. Because I think that I don't have a right to take away that truth from people who served in the Holocaust. If they think yeah, those they people to, never, they get yes. to decide. <laughs> they get to tell their um, own story, yeah. But I just, I thought that that was interesting. Like, what constitutes actually losing your humanity and what decides whether or not you were forced into something? Because to Primo, like, they were forced into stealing things in Auschwitz to stay alive because it is what you had to do. Mm-hmm. But then to... And I'm not talking like the big names, like like to an average worker who was enlisted in right. Germany, did they feel like that's what they had to do? Right. Well, I think it's yeah. so interesting. Well, it's like in like in fiction, like in the book Thief, right? The girl, the orphan girl, is like goes to stay with this like working class German family who they're not fighting the war; they're just trying to live their lives in their little mm-hmm. village. And were they complicit? You know, it's really. I think. And I mean, I'm sure there was real people like that. That's yeah. fiction. But there's a, it is interesting. Um, I feel like when I think about the present and I feel like, you know, okay, like this issue I care about, it's very important mm-hmm. for me to be like speaking up and giving money and trying to learn all I can about whatever issue X, you know? And, and in that way, I'm trying to not be complicit uh-huh. so that if things spiral down in the most like, dystopian way that I can imagine our current present becoming if that happened which who mm-hmm. knows you know I'm doing these things now so I won't feel complicit if it happens and I, and I think oh if that dystopian thing happened I'd have to like sacrifice myself in some way you know well, to prove my, that like I have the moral high ground but like what was what which book did we read where we we're like oh waiting for the dark waiting for the light most people just kind of hunker down mm-hmm. and you survive it and you can't judge people for doing that. Yeah. It's the most human response, I think, because our ultimate – to survive is, like, our base instinct. And so when you think about random civilians in Germany, it is hard to say because you just – you got to get caught up in the spirit of your times, you know? Or but that's different than, like, killing people at a concentration Yeah, camp. no, that's different. I was more, yeah. like, thinking of, like, people – like, that's why I said the clothing job, not, mm-hmm. like – but, like, it's interesting because I just – I wonder sometimes, like, 
it's easy to look back now and say, were they complicit? Were they not? We don't really have an answer. Yeah. If 50 years from now, will people who are looking back on U.S. history say all the U.S. citizens were complicit in our right. mass shootings? All the U.S. Yeah. citizens were complicit in our racism. Yeah. Um, and so how do we judge what that is? Yeah. And how do we... How do yeah. we look at that? Because I don't, yeah, I just, it's so yeah, interesting. I, think, I don't know what yeah. that means for, um, for people. Like, what yeah. does that really mean for like our humanity? Because I wouldn't say that the average German citizen in World War II, or even the, even the lowly German soldier, like mm-hmm. someone who like, your job is to follow orders or you die. Like, I mean, yeah. who? how can we judge on that decision? But, like, I also can't judge Primo Levi for saying they don't have humanity anymore. Right. So I just, I wonder. It made me think a lot about what that... Right, because the same thing. Like, if if at the average German soldier who joined because everyone was joining, that means that, like, the person who joined the U.S. military after 9-11 and then went to Iraq and there was, mm-hmm. and that went badly and was, seems to have been a mistake. I would say a good chunk of Americans believe now, not everyone. It's We're allowed to have mixed feelings about it. But, the, but obviously, it didn't solve any problems. It did not stop terrorism. <laughs> that war did mm-hmm. not stop terrorism. Terrorism's still happening um, all over the world. Yeah. And, and is that person complicit? I don't know. know. I don't know if you can draw a direct correlation. I know that I've read a few novels that have a point in them about like a piece of art that was taken from a Jewish family and and now someone else owns it. Maybe not not the even the family who took it, but someone it's passed mm-hmm. along, right? Someone owns it now and but the Jewish the descendants are trying to get it back. And I feel like usually I'm like, yeah, give it back. Like give them something. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> like they've suffered, like their family has suffered even if it's not and then that the other people are just like, I bought this. Mm-hmm. I bought this not from the person who took it or the person from the person, like way down the line. And um, it's, well, and yeah, too, it's, here's the it's other tough. thing. Yeah, a lot of the Jewish people, after the fact, who survived the war, settled in, in Israel, Israel. Oh, and then are they so complicit yeah. in? all the murders of Palestinians that have happened since. 100% they are. But, like, is the average person. Like, where do we, where do we draw the line of when you become responsible for your people or your group or your generation's actions? Well, I think that the only time, I feel like, personally, I lean towards the individual is complicit um, if they're not actively trying to change the present status quo. And that's because, and I also think that being able to say you're not complicit is only something that someone in the majority can say. Because Mm -hmm. often in our current culture, we ask like a person of color to speak for their people, right? That's a horrible thing that regularly happens. But a white person can be like, it's other white people. It's not me. Mm -hmm. But other people don't have that cushion, you know? And so, um, so I feel like the health, like in my imagination, after World War II ended and Germany lost, the healthiest thing, and I don't know if they did this, yeah. <laughs> but the healthiest thing that Germans could have done is, like, some public form of repentance. A reparation in, a rep- of in some In some way. Like, even if that's just, like, a an art piece or, like, a, mm-hmm. a ceremony of some kind or, like, a day of remembrance where we remember how we, you know, because I think that's, um, there needs to be atonement. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It's interesting. But, yeah. I just, um, I don't think I thought about this the first time we did the podcast, but I've thought about it 
since as we've read books after this one and yeah. other books I've read since just what that looks like and what that means and I how we assign guilt and what constitutes guilt yeah. um and I wonder I mean I guess I don't really know much about who was charged with war crimes and who wasn't yeah because the average soldier wasn't charged with war no. crimes so is that where you draw like you know what yeah. I mean yeah so obviously yeah like the Nuremberg trials were to try to create a situation of reparations mm-hmm. and atonement so this, on a lighter note, this reminds yeah. me of something funny. So <laughs> a big shift change, <laughs> um, but related. So um, a mutual friend of ours, who I know will never listen to this. Okay. Um, she has gone on a few dates with a guy from South Africa. I haven't met him yet. It's not serious, whatever. But when she first told me about him after their first date, and that, oh, I think this is positive. You know, maybe I'll see him again. It's good. I immediately was like, oh, how old is he? And he's like, oh, he's like 30 our age. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that means that because I just read Trevor Noah's book about South Africa, uh-huh. uh, his like memoir. And I was like, oh, that means that like when he was born, apartheid still existed. And then it ended in his early childhood. And he's white. And so like he's benefited from the system. And how does he feel about it? And he, obviously he's living not in South Africa now. And what did his parents think about the end of apartheid? And I just started monologuing all of this. And she was just kind of looking at me with a weird look. And I was like. I promise I won't ask him these questions <laughs> if I meet him the very first time. But aren't you interested? Like, aren't you interested in what it means, like, I totally to inherit thought. a system like that? And and she was just kind of like, no. And I, and I was like, I realize it would sound like I was accusing him of being racist, <sighs> but he, I would only want to date him if he had really processed how he'd benefited from a system of privilege, that one of the most severe system of privileges that's ever existed in the history of the world. Like, it's crazy. I, I find it so interesting. A system of privilege... That is even more extreme than ours, which I know, is so because like, it was more overt than ours. Yeah. Ours might have the same type of consequences, but they're not as overt. Yeah. It's um, interesting. Yeah. Um, I definitely thought the same thing, and <laughs> this is I, I I'm in. I I she said she was dating someone who was South African. And I immediately, in my head, thought of, like, a black South well, yeah, African. Yeah, because the, the, that's the majority. The majority. Ma- and then I was, black. like, kind of jarred when I was, like, oh, he's a white South African. That, that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I think I, it's so interesting. If yeah. they continue to date, at some point, yeah, if I'm going to need to know the answer. And it's, <laughs> like, we be, I become friends with him because he's in our friend group, then I'm eventually going to get to this and ask him about it and try not to judge him on his oh, answers. Oh, and I would want to <laughs> know what, how are, like hidden racism in our feels country feels different yes. than what happened there and I totally. mean I understand he was a child but still you had to know well and I want to know what it's like now because it's not that long ago and obviously we know that you know de jure racism mm-hmm. based in law might change but de facto underlying racism Stays. is still there like just like here that's got to be happening there too somehow in some form but it, so this is what I like like I'd want this is like the conversation I'd want to have with like someone in Germany in 1950 you yeah. know like what tell me like how does this make you feel um also your conversation made me want to link to my my favorite Disney movie of all time which is about apartheid in yes. South Africa it is called the color of friendship it is the best honestly until <laughs> until I read born a crime by Trevor Noah I feel like all the information I had up from apartheid was from the Disney Channel original movie the color of friendship and it had a profound impact I on love me. that movie I um <laughs> have found it is on youtube yes um and i may rewatch it probably like every two or three years <laughs> i also at one point googled how much it would be to buy the dvd and it's like 60 dollars and i was well, like yeah because it was a made much. for tv movie but it was 
That movie is powerful though. And then like the so it's like about a white girl who's from it's South based Africa on a true story. who comes as an exchange student and she to a senator's family. So she thinks she's coming to a white family, mm-hmm. but the senator's family is black and they think they're getting a black South African, but they're getting a white one in the seventies during apartheid. And they and then it, like she understands why apartheid is wrong and then when she goes back to South Africa she has like the like resistance flag sewn into the inside of her car like her coat and she shows the like black servants how she's on their side it's so beautiful oh and then what's interesting (laughs) is it's based on a true story and they lost touch with that girl after she went back to South Africa yeah so um the family the senator's family in the notes later on and I've googled her since like they lost touch with her like they don't know what happened to her huh it's so interesting. I and she reads Roots while she's living with them. Yeah, I just it's and it's like during like it's in the seventies, so it's like right after the civil rights movement and like a time of extreme change in the U.S. Oh, still, God. like it's really great. And I wonder if I would love it as I haven't watched it probably in like three or four years, but like, no, we I should probably I would, watch it. We should probably watch I love it. that movie. I wonder if it's on like Amazon Prime or something because they have like some weird old movies. So on there. good. Um, anyways, I feel like let's, we can wrap up our discussion. Obviously we love this book. It was, it, it was, was on the list. Thought provoking. We, it was, we put it on the list. Should it be on the list? You should book, should it be a book you read before you die? Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and clearly I think it's interesting because, well, you'll not never be able to hear darn computer, our conversation from before, our conversation already has morphed. Based on the books we've read since, which I mm-hmm. find so interesting. Yeah. I love how much um, the things we're taking from these novels kind of shift and change as we keep going forward. Yeah, so basically reading is life-changing and you should do you it. You should write books. <laughs> um, so we thought for our next segment we could talk about something that is going on right now. Uh, the Great American Read, which is a specials on PBS all this summer, um, where they selected 100 books, America's favorite 100 books, based on like a survey that included all t- types of demographics, um, a representative survey. Mm-hmm. And so, and some of the books are written by Americans and some of them aren't, but they're just books that are beloved by Americans. And yes. then they're going to talk about all of those books and then every day over the summer you can vote for which books which book you think should be the number one best book that american that americans love and i watched the the first episode as of this recording premiered this week and i watched um the first half of it or so um but we both took the quiz online it's interesting there's definitely some overlap from this list mm-hmm. um but there's also more popular literature on yeah, there. Yeah, because it's just favorite novels. Yes. So, and there's also some children's books on there, which are not necessarily on our list. Yes. And so I had read 54 out of the 100. I had read 42. Um, I think I caught all of them that I had read, but I'm not positive. Um, were there any books in there you hadn't heard of at all? Because there was for me. There were a couple. Um, Colson Whitehead, I've heard of him before, but I hadn't heard of The Intuitionist. He's the guy who wrote the Underground Railroad. Yeah, I've heard of him. But I didn't. But I, had not I didn't heard know of that he had book. that other book. There was another one, um, the a separate piece. I hadn't, I hadn't heard, heard of that. I hadn't one. heard of that. Um, yeah, there's probably ten or so that I'd never heard of. Most of the ones I hadn't heard of, I've heard of their author before. Right. So like, D- Larry McCurdy, McMurdy is on here, <laughs> and I know I've heard of. I like. I can picture a book he's written in my head. But the book on here is Lonesome Dove, and that's not the one I can picture. Oh, which I have attempted to read Lonesome Dove and failed at reading it. So I didn't like it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and let's see what else. 
a lot of these I have read. Um, there's some that are definitely on my TBR, like Americana by mm-hmm. Chimamanda Ngozi I haven't read that. Um, War and Peace, which unfortunately is on our long term list. We are both very proud to check off Crime and Punishment. God, the that podcast. joy, re- like <laughs> listeners, that joy does not go away. If you ever just want like a ridiculously stupid thing to feel proud of, I mean, the audiobook wasn't bad. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it makes you if you're like a, a very active reader, it's very satisfying because it, it's literally on every book list that you can imagine. And you're just like, yes, I, and I like, I feel like I'm gonna have the same amount of joy for War and Peace. Oh, and for sure, like, yes, that's I've like read yeah, it. that's like a reader's bucket list item. I'm really surprised that the John Green book on here is looking for Alaska because I thought that one was not good. <laughs> oh, I don't think I marked that one when I went through. Hmm. Out of all his books, that's uh, that I have read, which is. Most I've read all of them. Looking ex- for Alaska is my least favorite, except for the one about the Catherines, abundance of Catherines, mm-hmm. because I tried to read that right after Looking Alaska, and in my opinion, they're the exact same book. They're not good. <laughs> Neither of them are very good. I'm wondering if I marked all the books. I feel like I didn't see some of these. There's some that are classics that I've always intended to read but not read, like Rebecca mm-hmm. by Daphne Daphne Demore. I've intended. Is that on our list? I wonder. I think it is. And then there's some. There's and then like the modern ones, like Harry Potter's on there and The Hunger Games. Uh, and there's some like more Twilight's on there, which I'm ashamed to say I had to mark off. Well, yes, but at the time when we read that, it was cool. It's just not cool now. No. I'm surprised it's on there because I feel like it's on there because people voted like, this is the book that got me into reading 10 Mm -hmm. years ago. And that's why it's on there because it it has not stood the test of time. Nobody is Does anybody really love that book anymore? No. I I hope not. Some other podcast I was listening to, apparently one of the people on it is like, really into it and they like pranked her by pretending that stephanie meyer had called the podcast and left a message on their voicemail that's funny. That was really hilarious um but overall i think this is a good list it definitely has a lot of our favorite books on there right. a tree grows in brooklyn um an agatha christie book uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison like definitely books I think and it has some pretty accessible books too like The Giver is yeah, an easy so like great. accessible book um Narnia was on here yeah have you ever heard of the clan of the cave bear I, I have actually I didn't realize I had until after you submit your scores on this list it shows you the picture and then I recognized the picture oh. and I was like oh I've heard of it haven't read it though also great that was on here was the left behind series which that's like the first books you and I ever like shared back and forth and we read, read the children's ones and the adult ones yeah yeah so special um also but that's the same thing i feel like those books are so old and you never hear anyone talk mm-hmm. about them anymore and i don't feel like i would like them if i read them now no, i don't think so know? either um so I, so maybe people vote for it as like this got me into reading do you know which book on here you would vote for to be american's greatest i don't know read? i'm looking through it right now i there's so many good ones on here to Kill a Mockingbird, Ready Player One, I mean, Pride and Prejudice. in Brooklyn is on the list. I know. There's books on here from both of our top five all-time lists. There is. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot, actually. Um, Honestly, when I first saw this list, I was like, why didn't we pick a list of 100 books to read for the podcast? I thought about that. Oh, my gosh. Someone on um, Instagram that we follow, uh, meaning I follow because I run the Instagram page, uh, had posted a stack of like books about literary books so it was like the thousand one books list and then there was another book that was like called like literature that changed the world Mm -hmm. and then there was another one that was like a hundred literature books to read or something and I was like I googled them and I was like we don't need 
more books about books. No. Well, and the thing is, we did this list because it came to you in a dream. It did come to me in a dream. <laughs> so, uh, it And was if divine. we had done, like, this list or the, you know, Goodreads, 100 most voted for books, we both, like, on that Goodreads list, I've read, like, 70 of those. Means I've read 60-something. Yeah, and so it wouldn't have been a very long podcast. Well, and I feel like, too... Um, this isn't anything against popular literature, like... Because we've read those books. And I, like, Harry Potter, I still think almost all the lessons I've learned in these books, I also learned from Harry <laughs> Potter. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. True, true. Uh, <laughs> maybe not maybe about not communism. The, and maybe not the racism ones, because they're not super diverse. Well, but, but the, like, learned, mud blood, yeah, queer blood thing. Their version of Race. racism yeah. in the stories. Um, their uh, allegory for racism. <laughs> Um, but I think there's something powerful in reading books we haven't heard of and finding something in them, which yeah. those lists wouldn't have given us that much of that because most yeah. of those books had at least heard of the author or the book itself. That's true. Yeah. I feel like it's more exciting, even if I feel like, even if it's less interesting to listen to maybe, but it's more exciting for us to read yeah. books that are totally unknown to us and to discover new authors and new parts of the world and new stories. And something that I'm really enjoying, too, about now that we have a decent amount of episodes out is looking at which books have people listening to them. Yeah. Um, And I think it's funny that sometimes it's books that I'm like, that's not even a famous book. Yeah. Some of them, like our Crime and Punishment episode, which I think is like one of my favorite episodes that we recorded, doesn't have that many listens. Uh But it's also because nobody else wants to read that either. (laughs) So I think that that's interesting. And we'll talk about that in an episode episode that you'll hear in the future. We kind of review some of our books and stuff. But I'm enjoying that a lot about this. Yeah. Um, so it'll, yeah, it'll be forward. interesting. We'll definitely have to see what vote, what book America votes for by the end of the summer. I think it ends on September fourth. And I was part of me was like, oh, I'm gonna try to read books from this list this summer. And then I was like, wait, a lot of these books are already on our list, and I can't have another book list that you know I'm reading what from. We could do at all. <laughs> is we could choose one from this list and do a mini sode about it, or and something. do a mini sode that's not on our list, but that's on theirs. That'd oh, be a good mini sode. Yeah, well, write that down. Yeah, that's good. So maybe we'll, we will choose one of the, the books from the popular 100 books from America and do a mini-sode. Yes. All right. Well, listeners, um, so this was our book 16. You're going to get this right before book 20. 20. Um, and and so we'll see you for book 20. Um, yes, which we can remind you is Titus Grown. If you are a listener who listens to every episode, you have already know that. Um, and we chose it on the last one. But it is Titus Grown that is yes. coming up next. Yes, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at 1001BooksPod and on Litzy at 1001BooksPodcast. And you can also email us at 1001BooksPodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next time. Until then, happy reading! reading.